Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Science. I'm Maya Wolner, your podcast host. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Zachary Dorner, historian and an assistant clinical professor in the University Honors Program at the University of Maryland. His first book, which we will be discussing today, is entitled Merchants of Medicines, The Commerce and Coercion of Health in Britain's Long 18th Century, and is available from the University of Chicago Press. His work can also be found in the William and Mary Quarterly, the Journal of British Studies, and the Washington Post. Good morning, Zach. It's nice to have you on the podcast. Uh, Good morning, Maya. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. So I want to start by asking you, how did you become interested in the medicinal trade, and what inspired you to take on this project? Our relationship with biology and medicine is actually an interesting one that stretches back pretty far in my intellectual career. I guess back in high school and early education. I was always interested in biology and medicine. Both my parents are biologists. So I worked summer jobs in biotech. I knew how to work a pipette and knew my way around a lab bench before even setting foot at university. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started off as a, pre, as a biology major with my interest always being history. And so I found myself really with feet in both of these worlds. And only later did I decide that history would be where I wanted to spend my time and intellectual energy and decided to go to grad school. But so at the, at the, at the one hand, this early experience in biology and labs really shaped my understanding of medicines as commodities, right? Things that had to be made, distributed, marketed, you know, required resources to develop and put through clinical trials and development. And that required a lot of business work, marketing on the back end before they even reached consumers or patients. Uh, and right, this understanding of medicine, thinking like a scientist, has informed who I am as a historian. Right? At first, deciding to go to grad school, I resisted that side of me. Right? I wanted to do history. I had sort of moved on from biology. But in the course of my early studies, I came to embrace that scientific way of thinking this understanding of how sort of the medicine sector business works today and becoming interested in how we got to that. Um, And so I really embraced that and it made me the historian I am today. And I guess the sort of pivotal moment in this is when I found Sylvester Gardner, the surgeon, uh, sort of seller and maker of medicines and land speculator in mid-18th century Boston. Uh, When I found him in a footnote, to sort of a general compendium on the history of medicine in the United States in an early grad seminar. And I ended up writing my first year paper uh, early on in graduate school on him and his sort of multi-leveled overlapping business pursuits. And even then, that was sort of a, a paper. I did not know that that would end up becoming the, being the germ of a dissertation that would take me to the medicine trade ac- across the early modern British empire. And then it would take me uh, to the book, Merchants of Medicines, with Gardner still playing a key role um, 
in the fourth chapter, looking at New England and the medicine trade in the North American colonies. Well, that's a really interesting intellectual trajectory. And certainly that background sounds like a great asset to have uh, as a historian, that's for sure. So you open your book with a vivid description of the medicine chest and its contents. And, and you write, if I may quote you, these items, sometimes sweet, other times bitter and often aromatic, were imbued with the hopes of those who prepared, sold and ingested them. So I was wondering if you could expand on this idea for our listeners a little bit and explain your approach to objects and how this informs the methodology of your research as well. So the reason I start the book with that analysis and that image of the medicine chest and all of its component parts, and the reason why there's a glass bottle on the cover of the book, actually, is the importance of the movement of these things, of these objects, to both the book's narrative as it you know, crosses oceans and time periods, as well as to its arguments um, about the role and importance of movement and commercial structure to the expectations that people develop for medicines and what they can and can't do, and for the bodies of the people uh, who ingest medicines um, voluntarily and not. But uh, uh, for now, I want to move on to sort of think a little bit more about that image uh, and sort of the, the quote you shared about right there. They're bitter, they're aromatic, and they're imbued with hope. And so that's sort of a, there's a lot to unpack there. And I think one of the important things to take away is that these objects, right, these medicinal objects, substances, even if they don't live up to today's pharmacological standards, uh, they evoked, and some certainly did have right, salutary effects at the time. But the important question in my mind to be asking of these early medicinal substances is A, as I've mentioned already, how they were produced, distributed, and sold, but also that they provoked a bodily response, right? Thinking about the relationship of the human senses to these objects, right? They were colorful, they smelled in a particular way, right? They had these particular aromas, and they oftentimes contained stimulants, whether that's alcohol for distillation or sugar or molasses or something like that, right? These things, they contain spices, right? They provoked the body in ways uh, that, if not salutary necessarily, it was a sensation and they provoked sensation, right? And sort of the closest between medicines and food in this period uh, is still a very porous, close connection. So thinking about the ways these things provoked the body really is central um, to A, people's response to them, and be the hopes that people put in institutions, right, put in these objects. And that is important because of the ties of these objects. But as I mentioned about right, the wood that makes up the medicine chest, right, it can be pine, it can be mahogany, right, the drugs, right, these natural products that are the base of these manufactured medicines. And then the re-export in the form of these medicine chests, right, that is tied to kinds of large-scale global resource extraction that are central to empire building, state power, imperial competition in the early modern period. And on the one hand, this example goes to show that on the one hand, medicines are commodities, they're manufacturers, just like so many other products that traverse the globe in this period. Uh, but on the other hand, right, because of the omnipresent specter of death and disease, particularly in this imperial political economy predicated on manpower, human labor, 
resource extraction, large-scale agriculture, the ability to wage war um, in a variety of places, right? Pe- institutions, individuals, is a big impetus and really incentive to find ways to hopefully forestall and mitigate death and disease uh, at sort of the institutional and larger level, but also on the individual level. Right? Medicine is iterative. People are desperate. And so medicines take on this outsized role as the place to put these hopes and beliefs at their, in desire, really, that there is some way to prevent and forestall the devastating mortality of this period. So you've already hinted a little bit at your approach to medicines as commodities. And so I wanted to ask you to expand a little bit on the British medicinal trade and how it emerged, and more specifically, what kinds of business practices were deployed to establish itself. And for these merchants of medicines, sort of what kinds of challenges did they face and how did they find innovative solutions during this period? Yeah, let me start to answer that by saying that the trade in medicine in Britain, in Europe, in all different places, had existed for a long time, um, just not at the scope and scale that emerged in the early modern and based on my findings, particularly the later 17th and long 18th centuries. Uh, so this is a period right, that sees the expansion of European overseas empire, the development of a medical marketplace, the so-called consumer revolution in Europe, changes in household income and spending. Right? So this really so I locate this A in empire, but B also in sort of these other kinds of economic changes that are occurring in the early modern in early modern Europe at the same time. And there's a lot of the British medicine trade emerges in this larger scale bulk commercialized form, also as a result of pre-existing currents of pre-professional competition and a lot of other sort of internal to the medicine practitioner world. Uh, factors that I won't necessarily get into here. But the thing that I want to press on here and really emphasize and underscore is that what changes in this period, the expansion of the British medicine medicine trade on this global scale, isn't a discovery in a laboratory or in a workshop. It's not an innovation at the Royal Society. There aren't large, significant declines in mortality due to a particular medicine or technique or in sanitation. Those are things that occur really more in the 19th century and in metropolitan areas and not in colonial areas even then. But what makes the medicine trade expand in scope and scale at this period are the commercial and labor needs of empire and the institutions that underwrite it and really carry out that work, as well as the credit instruments that arise in Europe Uh, to connect these places and allow long-distance trade uh, to occur. So thinking about bills of exchange, new forms of credit and debt. Um, And I'll elaborate on that a little bit more, but thinking about right that this is the continuation of long-term trends, but also a really quickening and expansion based on particular geopolitical and political economic changes of the long 18th century. And in dealing with this, you know, all of a sudden, you know, longer distance trade in medicine, right? Looking at the customs records for medicines in this period uh, coming out of ports in England, uh, right? We see that these medicine exports are largely going to places overseas that are dependent on large populations of 
bound labor, whether enslaved agricultural laborers or soldiers and sailors, trading company employees uh, in South Asia, etc. And so thinking about these long distances that medicines would have to traverse in the hold of a ship packaged next to other provisions, right, where there is leakage and spoilage and cramped conditions on these long, months-long sea voyages in some cases, thinking about the East India Company. Um, that sort of sums up the difficulties that these uh, manufacturers of medicine would have to face, thinking about these challenges that are not unique to the medicine trade, but really characteristic of all long-distance trade in the early modern period, thinking about spoilage. How, do you rec- how does one recoup a debt from someone far away that you might never have met face-to-face? How does one make connections in a new market? How can one trust the person who is responsible for selling, collecting the proceeds from pursuing litigation on your behalf right in these faraway places? Uh, and again, little of this is unique to the medicine trade, but we see interesting responses arise for the medicine trade as it really uh, spreads to connect all of these locations across the early modern British Empire. So some of the responses include right, standardizing products in bottles with lab- in particular labels and stoppers to prevent spoilage and to uh, enable the proper and recognizable uh, identification of particular substances to make them available in smaller dosages such that large-scale quantities wouldn't have to be sold or that someone could sort of take away with them right, a vial with only a particular dose a few doses, um, as well as right, these manufacturers of medicines, and by that I mean apothecaries, druggists, chemists, and physicians in some cases uh, in Europe, right, they're acting more like merchants. They oftentimes have their own counting houses now where they can right, have more standardized letter writing and packaging. They have people working for them, often earning wages to make medicines uh, in sort of more bulk industrial capacities with stills that can hold hundreds of gallons, large fires, toxic fumes coming from these sort of open air manufacturing processes. And also they have connections to pursue litigation. They're investing in the stock market. They are borrowing money in London to buy more raw materials to make in medicines. They are outfitting the Royal Navy vessels, uh, vessels involved in the Middle Passage, right? They're on the one hand, making these ties to the institutions of empire and really relying on new credit instrument, instruments that are coming into fashion uh, in the later 17th century to finance and capitalize their partnerships uh, at scale that hasn't really been seen before uh, in this uh, industry, if I can call it that. Um, but of course, even with these sort of Mitigation techniques of litigation, debt, you know, taking out bonds, trying to instill trust through standardized packaging and correspondence. Of course, there's always risk and uncertainty. And I've tried to also show that in the book, that despite all these best laid plans, long distance trade is still extremely capricious and complicated. And it's some of that challenge of movement and that uncertainty and risk uh, that shapes these expectations, and really the physical form of medicines in this period. And that's a key argument, is that it's not just what's written in medical texts or even 
the perceived needs of imperial institutions. It's also the physical forms and ways of thinking necessitated by the exigencies of long-distance trade that shapes medicines and, by extension, what people think of them, what people think of diseases, what people think of healthcare, and what people think of the bodies and people that are subjected to that healthcare in a variety of imperial spaces. So you've already begun to allude to labor needs and empire as driving a large part of the medicine trade. So my next question sort of jumps off from that and uh, asks you to describe a little bit more the entangled nature of empire building, state power, and the medicine trade in the 18th century. As on the one hand, uh, medicines embody these processes, these intertwined processes, Um, right? And as I've mentioned before, and you rightly bring up again, right? Empire building and state power uh, in this period and other periods is dependent on this mix, this sort of intertwined nature of human labor, both voluntary and involuntary, at huge scales. And so, in order to try to keep that labor productive and working in service of the institutions that are increasingly managing, organizing, deploying, controlling, moving that labor in this period. Um, it's a particular space where medicines can begin to take on um, increased political economic importance. Uh, both at, and so that we can see this at both the highest levels of parliament, of the governors of the East India Company, of right, the Lords of the Admiralty for the Royal Navy, land speculators, right, thinking about plantation owners, thinking about medicines as a political economic necessity, thinking about provisions and how can we keep these institutions doing the work that we, and by that I mean, so these agents of empire wanted to do with regard to British political economy vis-a-vis European rivals. But also at the individual level, we also see very personal motivations uh, for the place of medicines within this constellation of empire building state power and really uh, efforts to sustain life in this period. Thinking about right, a person who has been transported, right, been taken captive and moved to Barbados, someone who has you know, migrated more voluntarily from England to the, the Caribbean or the North American colonies, who is recently posted at Fort St. George in South Asia. As those people, as they confront these new disease environments under new constellations of stars and thinking about the mutability of bodies that was still understood to potentially occur in these new environments, uh, portable European medicines provided a sort of a sense of familiarity uh, from the kinds of health ways that those people had come from, but also they also provided a means of control over um, unfree populations, bound populations in those places, as well as they also, sort of on the really personal level, they enabled people to try to stay alive in these places where, as we know, with these you know, endemic disease, threats of warfare and injury and all of that, right, death is omnipresent. It's on people's minds. And so it gives medicines this both economic weight, but also this sort of emotional, intellectual weight. Uh, playing an outsized role in people's lives and thinking. And so on the one hand, medicines really, as I said, embody uh, these 
processes of empire building and state power. Um, but they also are a popular, but they also help make that happen. Right? So they both embody this. They're a popular trade item that reflected these desires and the needs of state power, whether in warfare, trade, agriculture, what have you. But they also help make that happen. They help entrench those things. And I think uh, we'll get to this later in our conversation, so I won't belabor it here, but thinking about how expectations and desires and control that these medicines enable to happen. And sort of more prosaically, the movement of credit and value that they enable as a you know, profitable transatlantic global trade good uh, enable these processes to uh, entrench on the ground, enable labor and value to be extracted uh, from right, colonial environments, whether that's cutting down trees in northern New England or on a sugar estate uh, in the Caribbean. Yeah, I, I think you really show um, both the economic and emotional weight, how medicines have both of that in, you, in your work. So I, I thought that was very, uh, very powerful. Um, I want to ask you now, uh, because I thought this was actually one of the more most interesting aspects, too, of your argument is the difference between the physiological and ontological view of disease. So I wanted to ask you to give our listeners um, some information on that distinction and how the medicine trade intervened in uh, making it. And then I also wanted to ask, uh, as a sort of follow-up question, how did these different approaches to disease shape the underlying assumptions about medicines and bodies during the 18th century? Yeah, this is a really fun question for me because this is where a lot of my teaching uh, resides these days, right? Uh, it's a central, right? This thinking of how expectations about medicines and human bodies changes in this period is both a central argument and point of my book, but it also is this really interesting question that, of course, has tremendous resonance and pertinence today, both in terms of Right, the current COVID-19 pandemic, but also with tenets of precision medicine and targeted therapeutics um, you know, with regard to treating some cancers and other kinds of ailments today. So this sort of give and take between are our bodies naturally alike or are they different? How are they perceived? What is the source or nature of ill health? How do we deal with that? Right, these, are these are not natural, there are not timeless, natural answers to these questions. These are things that are socially and culturally, politically constructed. And the relationship between these, the answers that we come up with change over time, as, I, as I've shown in the book. But it's the real thing to think about uh, between... And so the terms physiological and ontological views of disease, uh, that can sound a little complicated at first. What it really means is you know, for, for millennia, really, going back to classical ways of understanding the body, thinking about Galen and the four humors, um, the physiological view of disease is that right, ill health, uh, ailment, pain, etc., stems from when the body's four humors are out of their natural balance. So every individual, every person has a particularly optimal balance of the four humors, which is called one's constitution. It's called one's constitution. And when the four humors are not in that optimal constitution, whether that's due to uh, a stoppage or a blockage in the body's natural flows of fluids and substances, 
uh, or, and this is really interesting to me and to, to students when I teach this, right, the body is very porous at this time, right? It's, it's open to the influence of the stars, of meteorological phenomena, of emotional uh, well-being, of diet, you know, this is an anachronistic term, but of exercise, right? Physical movement and moving through the world and things like a night out dancing or a fraught emotional relationship or something like that, a particularly humid, rainy day. Those are things that could affect the balance of one's humors and could then lead to ill health. And on the one hand, this can seem when I teach this, uh, even when I think about it, right, this can seem very strange you know, a, a relic of a long gone era. But on the other hand, thinking of the body as porous, emphasizing well-being and all of these different inputs and things that can affect our health also seems very familiar and relatable. I think that that sort of play of expectation is really interesting when thinking about this. Um, and the ontological view, by contrast, um, isn't new to the long 18th century, but it really gains popularity and commercialization and sort of implementation uh, in the long 18th century. And what that means is thinking about diseases as something unto themselves. So ontological in that they can be sort of understood unto themselves. They are something, ill health disease is not something of the body, of each individual person, but it is something external that then attacks or invades the body. So on the one hand, this reinterprets disease as things that can be studied on their own right. And um, well-known medical lecturers, physicians, uh, experimenters, right, such as Robert Boyle, Thomas Sydenham, Sydenham uh, Linnaeus, Borjava, Hermann Borjava, all published works to this end. Uh, but in this relationship then, right, if disease is something that attacks the body from without, then the body itself is more closed off, right, to think about that, you know, invasion and sort of invasion of ill health. But also as a result, if ill health doesn't necessarily depend as much on sort of individual complexion and constitution, this particular unique balance of the humors, then there's this radical opportunity for bodies to be seen as essentially the same or alike in that right, a particular ailment is caused by a particular knowable external disease and not due to some unique characteristic or equilibration of the body. And this isn't to say that they were thinking in terms of germ theory or pathogens, but there is this idea that diseases can be studied and that they are these things that are external to the body that can cause ill health. And the way that the medicine trade, right, so there is literature being uh, published sort of to this end in the later 17th century, and it starts to catch on into the higher levels of medical education and professional education in Europe at this time. But what I argue really, and others have sort of worked on this as well, like Harold Cook, thinking about the needs of commerce also help popularize this ontological view of disease. Because by extension, if ill health in a particular way are all caused by a similar disease external to the body, then it would follow that a similar medicine or remedy would then be able to now treat or even cure, which 
right? Thinking back to balance and the humors, there's really no such thing as curing, except in some cases and some, uh, for some diseases and ailments. But right, it's about re-equilibration and rebalancing. But now when the disease is outside of the body, there's this option of potentially curing it, of really treating it, of really getting rid of it. And medicines offer a really convenient and profitable way to do this. Um, so the medicine trade, you know, thinking about medicines that are specific to particular diseases begins to take off, begins to see more mention in publications. Uh, they're manufactured. You see them in the manufacturing lists and advertising of merchants of medicines in London. They're exported um, across the empire. And also thinking, and, and, and that's where empire also really helps forward and uh, spread this idea. Because thinking about, as we mentioned, um, and this is sort of to answer the part of your question about the different approaches to disease shape these underlying assumptions about bodies and medicines. If we're thinking about this imperial political economy where labor and manpower and work is really central to the work, to the expression of power overseas, state power, right, uh, interstate competition, then maintaining productivity and uh, is central to why people are buying and selling and investing really their hope in these medicines. And so thinking about simplicity, cost, time, right? If there is a surgeon on a Royal Navy vessel and there is some sort of sickness, you know, perhaps it's scurvy or it's malaria or yellow fever or something else uh, spreading among the crew, right? Of course, who live in cramped, you know, poorly ventilated uh, quarters, uh, right? The time and investment of that surgeon uh, evaluating, identifying, reading the bodies of, listening to personal testimony from all of those sailors to try to compile particular humoral treatments to deal with that ailment versus coming to the conclusion that, oh, it is X disease and, the, and looking up, thinking, reading a manual or something like that and coming up with a, the particular specific medicine that would deal with that disease across all bodies, all people who seemingly have it, that's a much simpler, cost-effective, quick, time-efficient way of treating that ailment among right, these bulk populations. And the same holds true uh, with the, you know, uh, captive Africans on, in the Middle Passage, on plantations, on East India Company vessels, among the East India Company's troops in South Asia in the 18th century, um, among settlers in northern New England. So thinking about how this, this ontological view of disease, yeah, so what that does to sort of popularize and commercialize a particular kind of bulk medicine that's predicated on seeing human bodies as and people as responding to disease in medicine in a similar way, um, and how that really both at the same time reinforces and is shaped by the desires of these imperial institutions, as we talked about these sort of goals and motives of imperial political economy fit in nicely with this new thinking about medicine and disease in this period. And as that starts to become more profitable and popular, we see this ontological view of disease, these ideas of specific medicines for particular diseases, that definition becomes a little less strict. 
specific medicines, this promise that they will treat something across different people starts to be used a little more flippantly and in a more marketing way that we see that definition start to become looser. And it becomes more of a label for popular medicines and a sort of buzzword, if you will, uh, to drum up sales uh, in these different spaces. So the ontological view of disease also seems to have implications for racialized views of the body and bodies. And so I wanted to ask you, um, in your chapter on the possibility of unfree markets, you discuss plantation medicine and how control and convalescence often went together for enslaved peoples and forced laborers. So I was wondering if you could give us some specific examples of the kind of violence that the medicinal trade enacted during this period. Um, on those peoples? And how, how would you describe that? I guess I should start with saying that this idea of an ontological view of disease and specific medicines in general, at first offers a really radical proposition, if you pause and think about it for a moment. This idea that any person, right, whether that's an enslaved laborer in Jamaica, a person in a hospital in London, a Royal Navy sailor on a ship in the Atlantic, an East India Company servant on route to South Asia, right? That they were a wealthy spinster or someone languishing in debtor's prison, uh, a woodcutter in the New England woods, or a wealthy um, Quaker landowner in Pennsylvania, right? That all of these different people, you know, a child, regardless of statuses of bodily difference, skin color, age, sex, socioeconomic status, right? Theoretically, under this principle, all people seemingly suffering from a similar ailment would benefit from and could be treated with a similar form of medicine. So on the one hand, that's a radical proposition, given the strict hierarchies and emergent categories of difference that we see during this period. But where this begins to quickly be... So on the one hand, this idea of sameness and the promise it seems to suggest enables these large markets for medicines in this, uh, that are understood in this way. On the other hand, right, that quickly begins to present a problem, as you, as you, um, as you mentioned, right, in spaces like the early modern Caribbean that are predicated on emergent ideas of racial difference and hierarchy and power dynamics and violence and exploitation. Um, so to answer the first part of your question, and so I should say, what happens then is, right, from historical remove, we understand, right, that differences in health outcomes in a lot of these places, right, stem from the forms of institutionalized violence, brutality, exploitation, right, that shape uh, the daily lives of people um, surviving under the institution of slavery. Um, but at the time, right, a lot of planters and medical practitioners attributed these disparities in health outcome, A, either to racialized behavioral pathology or to right, emergent differences, not necessarily in to emergent differences in how people expected to respond in a similar way to these treatments are actually responding, are seemingly responding in different ways. And right, that is could be because of 
right? The regimes of institutionalized violence that are occurring, right? Malnutrition, exposure, poor clothing, right? All of that. But at the time, it's a very convenient evidence uh, to fuel these emergent ideas of inherent biological difference based on skin color. So right, this idea of human sameness and an ontological view of disease on the one hand really fosters this and underpins, I guess, intellectually, this, me- this broad medicine trade and sales across right, British Imperium also uh, provides sort of the leading edge of ways to then justify and scientifically, you know, uh, based on the ideas of the day, start to justify, in their eyes, ideas of inherent bodily difference. Um, and the ways this looked on, you know, in, in plantations is thinking about, right, medicine is often, you know, in the 18th century and as always, um, right, is, is both a means of, as you say, convalescence, but it also can be a means of confinement, right? Thinking about ideas of quarantine, of, you know, the hospital space, the hothouse on the plantation is a space of quarantine and sequestration, but it's also one of confinement of, you know, various devices for restraining people um, to remove them from people they know and love. Thinking about, right, this justification as we start to see, right, as observers at the time start to see health outcomes not conform to what they're expecting, it institutionalizes the practice of overdosing enforced medicalization um, and using uh, higher dosages of stronger, sort of more heavily concentrated versions of medicines on plantations, which also is a boon to transatlantic medicine exporters, right? Overdosing larger orders to the Caribbean, um, you know, more sales, as well as, right, we also see um, medical practitioners implicated in forms of punishment and discipline and really gruesome acts of reprisal on estates in the Caribbean. Thinking about physical harm, you know, uh, whipping, cutting, amputations as punishments, um, control of reproduction and childcare. So thinking about there are many ways and many scholars, um, you know, have focused on the relationship of the medical establishment to these aspects of plantation life and the control um, and agency of enslaved persons within that institution of slavery. But, I, but what I'm trying to show here is the ways that this promise of specific medicines and human sameness provides this context, this framework to then justify inherent bodily difference coming out of that and provides a means of further controlling and inscribing violence and difference on the bodies of enslaved persons, which then also provides a boon to transatlantic medicine exporters. And of course, even as these ideas of human difference start to erode the promise of ontological view of disease in terms of human similarity, what stays behind is this idea that these kinds of manufactured European medicines will have some benefit for disease. Right? That part doesn't go. So the transatlantic global infrastructures for medicine export that have been created over the preceding decades, that stays and those exports continue. It's just sort of the radical implications of the intellectual um, understandings underpinning that, that sort of get corroded and altered um, sort of with these efforts to justify inherent bodily difference 
and so thinking about amelioration, and I put that in quotation marks, right, on Caribbean plantations leading into the age of abolition in the 19th century. So let's talk a little bit about New England now. Um, I want to ask, how was the New England medical landscape evolving during the long 18th century? And in what ways did merchants of medicine and also local particularities uh, to this geography play into this evolution? Yeah, the the section on New England in the book uh, actually stems from that early research on Sylvester Gardner uh, and so the, the overlapping economies, medical economies, and land speculation economies and trading economies of 18th century New England. And in the book, this evolved to provide a foil and comparison to the slave societies of the Atlantic world I talk about in the previous chapter, the possibility of unfree markets, like we just discussed. Um, on the one hand, right, New England is certainly connected to the institution of slavery, as I discuss, right? thinking about provisioning and all these other trades, right, that, and even participating, right, in the Middle Passage that tie New England to this institution. But so in some ways, right, this relationship to enslavement and medicine is similar. But I wanted to use this, use this exp, uh, other context to illustrate some different details that um, sort of complicate and nuance the place of medicines across Right, the British Empire and the Atlantic world at this time, but at the same time, sort of reinforce how deeply entrenched they're becoming in the day-to-day life, economy, long-distance trade of these different um, imperial spaces, but also how thinking about them uh, is relatively conserved across these spaces uh, to really show how far right, the medicine trade has come uh, over these decades that I look at. Um, Right, so New England, like other colonial locations in this period, right, is grappling with labor needs and the profitability of a variety of trades, just like other locations, even though right, the populations that comprise that labor, the specific kinds of trades are different, right, we can kind of boil it down to similar moves of right, migration and local resource extraction, whether that's furs and lumber right, versus other things. Uh, in the case of New England. And this chapter, and so thinking about, right, even though it looks different in many ways, we still see sort of transatlantic medicine imports to New England, the emergence of local merchants of medicines and experts who are taking those imports, but also starting to manufacture and make their own medicines. They can sell profitably across the region in these sort of uh, trades that are going further into the interior. And we can see also the, the wealth generation from that. And that's a big part of the Sylvester Gardner example in chapter four here is how the medicine trade enables him to diversify into the provisioning trade, into land speculation, which reciprocally enables European medicines and medicines of his own production to go further into the New England interior and shape, in many ways, if we're thinking about capital flows, shape the patterns of deforestation, lumbering, settlement patterns in Massachusetts and the region that, you know, in 1819 becomes Maine, uh, really shaping the development of that region. Uh, he is, his proprietors, his Kennebec proprietor group that he was a part of, reactions to them, their investments really shaped the Kennebec region um, in what is now Maine. And really this, this New England chapter enables me, this New England example enables me to follow the money in ways that I wasn't able to do 
for the East India Company or in the Caribbean as much, thinking about how profits from the medicine trade are going into other local trades of land, lumber, and provisions in ways that shape local politics, government, economy, culture, um, and really contributed to resource extraction, environmental change, and market building, and settlement uh, in the New England interior. And it's really this sort of interconnection. If we think about New England on its own, and in some ways how I initially thought about it all those years ago, right? it is several merchants doing these things in local regional markets. But when sort of as part of this larger book project, we see New England, whether through Newport or Boston or New London, uh, connected to these much wider transatlantic, transimperial flows of lumber, of medicines, of provisions, of capital to fund slaving voyages. It's all connected. It just further puts medicines into this really complicated picture of long distance uh, trade in this period. But it also, again, serves to reinforce, and even the context is very different, right? Thinking about the slave societies of the Caribbean versus Pennsylvania and Massachusetts, we still see medicine sort of occupying similar spaces and engage with similar power dynamics uh, in both places. So in chapter five, you talk about medicinal self-sufficiency. What is that and how and where were attempts made to achieve it? And then also sort of as a second follow-up question, under what kinds of circumstances did British medicines and folk remedies persist or coexist together? So I'm going to start with the second half of your question. And that's a really important one because, right, despite my, you know, my, my talking on your podcast and writing in the book, and I've tried to show this, uh, is that this is not a clean break, right? This move towards more commercialized, manufactured medicines does not represent a clean break from you know, folk home remedies uh, to a commercialized marketplace of specific medicines or something like that. This is a long process. It looks different in different spaces and places with different people. And we see this sort of contestation, this competition between these different health cultures and health ways right, to today. Right. I mean, and this is, we see this in all sorts of different places that this is not a complete process over the period I I talk about in the book. You know, I argue that this commercialized way of viewing medicine uh, in this particular way comes to the fore, particularly in an imperial context, given its relationship and convenience and support of these goals of empire and long distance trade. But it's certainly not the only way that people are engaging with medicine, disease, their bodies. Um, and right, it's, a, it's a challenge to find records of the persistence of right, these other kinds of remedies and really the coexistence of these things. But there are scholars out there who've done an incredible job um, recreating it. And right, there are examples from right, the reliance on hybrid medical practices and remedies right, in the Caribbean, in South America, in North America, right? Thinking about indigenous, African, European ways of viewing the body and disease are all commingling and entwining and in competition with each other, right? In these really hybrid spaces um, in this period. But another really interesting place to see this is in recipe books, um, which when they exist and they have some marginalia are incredible resources. We can see people across Europe, North America, right, recording recipes that use 
family, longstanding family knowledge, longstanding community knowledge on how to make something. And we see local ingredients, local herbs, plants being used. We also see in the 17th and 18th centuries, the incorporation of imported drugs and medicines, right? We see rhubarb coming in. We see Asian spices. We see indigenous techniques. We see North American things like snake root and ginger and sassafras, all of these right, um, different products these really, that represent the span and movement of empire. We see represented on the pages of recipe books from across the social spectrum. And of course, right, a recipe book requires literacy. So of course, this is not a representation of everyone right, who is engaging with health and healing and living and dying uh, in this period. But I do give us a sense of how in the space of the home on the ground, these different threads and these different ways of thinking are actively co-mingling and interacting you know, on the individual level. Um, and for me, I guess uh, I'll pivot now to this idea of medicinal self-sufficiency because, of course, you know, pe- for, for people who don't have access to you know, go to a market and purchase a remedy or a bottled medicine. Um, this idea of medicinal self-sufficiency is quite familiar, right? Using what you have in a kitchen garden or in your local surroundings to craft a remedy in hopes of, you know, pall- palliation or allaying an ailment or death or some sort of something like that. Um, but if we think about it again on this imperial commercial scale, because a lot of popular medicines aren't necessarily found in sort of the British Empire, right? Peruvian bark, Jesuits, also known as Jesuits bark or chinchona, is one of the most popular remedies of the day, right? It is manufactured into a variety of medicinal products. And it's a bark that comes from Spanish South American um, holdings at this time. And it's exported across the world, right? It's quinine, which we know has some properties to uh, assuage the symptoms of malaria. Um, you know, it can be distilled, can be extracted from the bark of, you know, the chinchona tree. Right? So, so this is a very popular medicine. And so thinking about right, during the American Revolution, for example, when Spain sides with the rebellious American colonists, Britain loses a large source of its imports of chinchona for its troops. And this causes a real problem among sort of administrators and people in the army. Uh, so thinking about, right, when we're faced with this period of constant, costly overseas warfare, having control over your own sources of the most prominent and popular and seemingly efficacious medicines and drugs, the raw materials of the day, is really important. So in this period, as I talk about in Chapter 5, we see sort of in the aftermath of the Seven Years' War, we see attempts spring up across the British Empire, whether that's in Fort St. George, in South Asia with the East India Company or at the Pennsylvania Hospital uh, in North America to start laboratories and workshops, places of manufacturing medicines in situ in these colonial locations. So they don't have to necessarily rely on exports from, the con- from Europe, from London, as much as they had in the past. But they're still sort of ingrained these, co- these ideas of specific medicines, of these kinds of commercialized medicines, but now trying to make them in a local area, sometimes using local substitutes, 
sometimes not, uh, to try to A, cut down on the time it takes to export something. Right? Thinking about colonial warfare, right? Time, the time lag can be the difference between you know, life and death in some cases, in their opinion, as well as trying to cut down the cost. Right? It's expensive to ship large containers of glass bottle medicines you know, from London to Madras or something like that. Uh, so there is this sort of move in the seven, later 1760s to start creating medicines in situ. And a lot of those plans don't quite work out how um, you know, the people who tried to implement them thought they would. We do see moves towards incorporating local substitutes, uh, creating medicines in situ, the rise of these colonial merchants of medicines um, to sort of take some of the burden off of this long-distance trade uh, in this uh, time when health is seen as really paramount to the success of you know, armed forces overseas. Uh, and so thinking about, just again, sort of thinking about medicinal self-sufficiency and the relationship of right, all these different kinds of understanding, ways of understanding health and wellness at this time, right, for me, the point I want to show is that right, these different health ways and these different ways of thinking right, is about access to wealth. Right, and that this long distance trade of medicine allows some access to generational wealth, as I show in the books, or with, with what happens to the families and the employees in these firms and these partnerships, I should say, moving forward. And B, that the broader change in the commercial structures, uh, I'll have to probably edit this out, I apologize. But the point I want to show is about, another point I want to show, so that the second half of that is that. Is the, is the change in the commercial structures in which healthcare is provided, right? It not necessarily at the exclusion of one form or another. We see this new entrant into the competition that is rising to prominence and that is reshaping these commercial infrastructures and is shaped by the commercial infrastructures of empire. And that leads to all of these other ripple effects uh, down the road. So we're coming to the end of our time now, but I just wanted to finish with one last question, which is, uh, what was the most surprising aspect of your research on this project? What, what, for example, did you discover that you were not expecting to find? Well, first of all, I wasn't necessarily expecting to find such close ties between institutions of slavery, the state, and the medicine trade, but perhaps I should have been. But what I want to discuss uh, is a more specific example that I think points to sort of the aftermath of the narrative I discuss in the book and sort of points to sort of what happens next. So the thing that really surprised me the most uh, in carrying out this project was finding the records of the Plowcourt Pharmacy, which is sort of one of the main partnerships I examine in the book. It was founded by Sylvanus Bevan in 1715. And I found the records for this pharmacy within the corporate archive of GlaxoSmithKline which, uh, for those who don't know, right, is this tr multinational pharmaceutical giant that's headquartered in London and currently holds, was given just recently, the largest U.S. government contract to, manage, to manufacture COVID-19 vaccines as part of the Operation Warp Speed initiative. But you know, the records, the ledgers, account books, letter books of this 18th century partnership Right, reside in this sleek modern edifice in West London, where I would go to the corporate archives and sort of jarringly read through this very detailed business record of this you know 18th century pharmacy that is involved in overseas trade, operates a sophisticated for the time laboratory, 
is really building up its ties to the state in the East India Company. And I'm sitting in a cubicle in what I think was the customer service call center or something in Glaxo's London headquarters, reading through the records of really what is the germ, what, what sort of, if you trace it all the way back to all the corporate mergers and acquisitions and what have you, really is one of the germs of this huge multinational big pharma firm today. And right, it's not that I wasn't expecting this necessarily, but just to see it laid out, A, so plainly in the records, but B, sort of in that sort of jarring, strange experience of reading through these records in this space, really put it into context for me that on the one hand, right, this world of early modern medicine and this entanglement of state power, empire building medicine, how people thought about their bodies and the expectations they had for disease and wellness and people, right, seems like, I mean, it is the past, right? This is an 18th century history, but that past is not over, right? It still continues by the fact that, right, we still have these conversations about differential health outcomes, right? How people are alike, how they're different, what is wellness, what should we be expecting of people in certain situations and under certain pressures? What is the most efficacious treatment? How much should it cost? What should access be? Who can profit from it? Who can um, have access to it for what cost? So all of these questions are still there. And thinking about it today, right? Thinking about the role of state contracts, these kind of state-influenced mass markets to both the origins of these big firms and thinking about right how it helps sustain them today. All that was just made beginning to be made so clear to me in just the process of doing that research, let alone what I uncovered in the records themselves. But just that process really sort of set it in motion for me that, right, though my narrative that that I share in the book ends in the early 19th century, right, there is the next stage of pharmaceutical development. And its ties to empire and finance, right, is fascinating and important and waiting for study uh, moving into the 19th and 20th century and 21st centuries. That certainly sounds like a very out of time and space archival experience. That's for sure. Um, Well, thank you so much, Zach, for joining us on the New Books Network. Uh, Thank you, Maya. I really appreciate our conversation and I'm glad to have been here. Thank you for listening. I'm Maya Wolner, and this is New Books in Science. 